Hello and welcome to Sustainability in Progress, a podcast focused on exploring the most topical themes in sustainability. In this series, we will be inviting guest speakers and industry experts to discuss the most challenging issues facing our world today. But more importantly, the opportunities to address these challenges and make tangible changes. The sustainability space is constantly evolving, so we've decided to call this podcast Sustainability in Progress or SIP. There is no one-size-fits-all formula to solve the environmental crisis, implement social justice, and install systems focused on equity. We invite you to join us on the journey where we will explore topics from sustainable food and agriculture, law and policy, economics, to the science at the very heart of our challenges and opportunities. Are you ready for your morning sip? Welcome back to our listeners. We've got an exciting two-part episode coming up to discuss a very pressing topic that probably wouldn't be viewed as a sustainability issue at first glance. But when we peel back the layers a bit, we see how profound and lasting of an impact it will have across the world and for generations to come. We're of course referring to the Russia-Ukraine war. For the first part of this episode, I'll be chatting with Jenik Radin, an international affairs expert who has a wealth of experience and some amazing stories to tell. We'll be covering the impact on energy pricing and policy. And then my co-host, Laura Negri, will be speaking with Jenik about the war's impact on fertilizer and food pricing. Fun fact, in 1990, when the Republic of Estonia was striving for independence from the Soviet Union, he accompanied Estonia's Minister of Foreign Affairs to the office of President Ronald Reagan to secure support for Estonia's independence. He also co-founded the Afghanistan Relief Committee to restore Afghan independence after the Soviet invasion, co-authored investment, privatization, and corporate laws for Poland, Estonia, and Georgia, and drafted the interim peace constitution of Nepal. So naturally, we jumped at the chance to talk to him about the current crisis in Ukraine from both an international affairs lens and a sustainable development perspective. Today, we're joined by Professor Jenik Radin, adjunct international and public affairs professor. First, Professor Radin, can you give us a bit of your background and talk about how you got started in international affairs? Uh, a bit, that, that will narrow it uh, considerably. Uh, I've always been into international affairs. Uh, it started way back when, actually, when I was 10 years old and saw the Hungarian Revolution uh, on TV and wondered why they had to leave their country. And when I went to Columbia College, uh, I was very much focused on international, did a field trip to Brazil on anthropology, and that opened up the entire world and just continued in that path. So I'm very lucky. I knew what direction I wanted, and the direction was international, global, uh, although the word global was not used in those days. But it's very, very much that it's been the path that I started. And I will say one of the assets that I have, and maybe a number of you also might have it, I, I was born overseas. I was born in Berlin. I came as a kid. So anyone who is bicultural, by definition, uh, offers a lot to contribute to the international space because they can bridge uh, what they knew from home to what they're learning in school, etc. So I think it was a natural for me and there are many more like me. Great, thank you. 
Um, we want to delve a little bit into the conversation related to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and we're now almost nine months into the crisis. So can you give us an update on the current state of affairs and how you see this issue playing out into the new year and beyond? Well, obviously, that's uh, a question that can't be answered in a minute or two. But right now, uh, we see the Ukrainians uh, really energized, uh, although they're suffering tremendously. I mean, the country has been decimated, uh, and it will, as many people have predicted, be the largest reconstruction since World War II uh, that the world has known. Uh, The real question is, where does it go? And I think, one, we need to stop the killings, stop the atrocities, etc., But then we have not just a question of uh, reconstruction and uh, building the lives of those who have lost it, uh, the families, et cetera, the children. Uh, And I know from a fact that children will suffer throughout their entire lives because they will be mentally scarred from what they've seen. And that's a sad commentary. So what I'm getting at, it's a long-term process. In addition to that, How do you rebuild? And that will not happen in my lifetime. And I underscore my lifetime, although I expect to be here till at least 100. It will be in your lifetime on how do you rebuild the relationship with Russia, uh, given the atrocities that have been playing out on TV uh, and blogs, etc. So basically, we have a real problem of how to not just rebuild the country, rebuild which is Ukraine, but rebuild a relationship with Russia because Russia is not going anywhere. It's there. It has natural resources, whether energy or even agricultural resources. In addition to that, one of the things that also has to be rebuilt, and that's really difficult given what happened, is trust. Uh, One of the things that has happened, and it goes to your basic question of the status, uh, the Budapest Memorandum, which gave security to Ukraine if they would give up their nuclear weapons, which they had because they were part of the Soviet Union, that has now been decimated as a concept. So you have to ask yourself, what country in the world would ever give up anything nuclear in light of the fact that this particular agreement has been violated? So that's one of the legacies that we're going to have to live with. Great. And I'm glad you brought up the agricultural resources because we're going to get into that in a little bit. Um, But in the immediate term, the crisis seems to have set back many nations' climate and environmental goals, especially as they've had to ramp up their production of fossil energy sources to bypass Russia's gas supply. But in the process, they've also shifted their policy focus to diplomacy and defense and energy damage control versus meeting those net zero emissions targets that they set over the last several years. So the question for you is, how much of a lasting impact will the conflict have on the environmental and climate initiatives that were taking shape before the conflict emerged? In that sense, uh, there are only two types of people in the world, those who uh, see the glasses half full and those that see it half empty. On that, I see it as uh, half full. I think it's a, a blimp that we have, that we have to resolve, get over. But I don't think it will have a lasting impact because I think the uh, interest in the world is there to worry about climate change. Uh, 
It's not going as fast as we want the worries and the implementation, but I think this is a problem that we have right now that we have to resolve, uh, which is a technically a temporary one, but it may last a few years. But I don't think long-term it will have a lasting impact. It will have a short-term impact, but it will also have an impact that we have to resolve the, uh, let's say, the decimation that's occurred that's impacted climate change. So in one respect, I'm optimistic, although the short-term will not be very good, it will set everything back. Can you elaborate a little bit on the decimation from a climate perspective? Well, as you said, uh, for example, uh, the use of the fossil fuels, people are going to freeze, so they want uh, gas, they need oil. Uh, and when you need that, you're focusing your energies on how do you resupply that uh, as opposed to anything that might uh, be uh, putting your funds into uh, the transition. So in other words, it's a distraction which takes energies, personal energies, governmental energies, and therefore, if you need to free, uh, have warm homes, you'll pay whatever it is. That means you're encouraging more production in the areas that can send you uh, the gas and the oil, uh, because obviously the Russian ones are under an embargo, uh, et cetera, sanctions. So uh, basically what I'm saying is that uh, the need for the fossil fuels to heat uh, and to electrify is going to remain with us for at least the near future. Great. And I'm glad you brought that last point up. Um, and towards the end of our podcast, we typically try to tie these issues of global sustainability concerns, risks and opportunities into the consumer focus. So we'll touch upon that right before we close. Um, but you mentioned um, glass half full. So let's keep that same thought process going. We have to ask you on the flip side, the optimistic view suggests that the energy crisis will naturally force Europe and other market participants to be less dependent on foreign energy and in their stead push for a faster energy transition, as you mentioned. So for example, Germany has delayed the closure of its last three nuclear plants, and France has decided to nationalize EDF to boost its nuclear and renewable program. But could there be a light at the end of the tunnel? And what's your thought process on when we would likely see that? Obviously, with the caveat that there's pretty minimal visibility as we stand now. Uh, let me uh, rephrase your question in some respect through my answer. While transition, we have not yet, the world has agreed that nuclear is the way to go. Uh, we can agree that solar works wherever it can work where there's sun. We can say that hydro works wherever it doesn't do environmental damage and redoing the, tree, uh, the rivers, etc. But nuclear, we should also keep in mind that we are worried about a nuclear explosion in Ukraine because the fighting. So nuclear plants around the world have their own negatives. Look at what happened in Japan, which was just a natural disaster. But if we now have to worry that nuclear plants, nuclear facilities are subject for armed uh, targets, we got a problem. So what I'm getting at is while Germany has discontinued it and is re resurrecting it interim, uh, it may not be 
the answer for the future unless we also figure out how to handle them from a security point of view, which I think no one really focused on up to now. Uh, but I think Ukraine is a wake-up call that nuclear may be good from an environmental point of view, uh, although I think the judgment is somewhat out, but it's better than fossil fuels. It is not necessarily good from a security. And if security overrides uh, everything else, we got a real problem for the future. Uh, so I think that the transition is not as clear. And the other thing is, one of the things uh, that we keep forgetting in the transition is solar works wherever it is, but wind does not if there's no wind. Hydro doesn't if there's no water. Look at what's happening in the Himalayas, less water is coming down. So we will, unfortunately, the truth is still need fossil fuels at the minimum as a backup. So there will be no complete, and that includes whether oil or gas, there will be no complete transition. It's a question of how to manage and what the proportions are going to be. Uh, so, and uh, maybe technology can help us uh, get the fossil fuels to be cleaner, but I'm not optimistic for what I know. Okay, that's that's super helpful context. So. Um, I know we've spoken before in the past, and I wanted our listeners to get a little bit more context about your career and your work in the Eastern European region. Um, in the context of what the diplomacy pathway looks like, you mentioned earlier, building that relationship back up with Russia, what does that look like? And based on your time in Eastern Europe, what are what are our possible options here? Well, let's say, one, we're in a crisis, obviously. And during a crisis, people look at resolving the crisis or right now, uh, many people are rightly uh, underscored upset with what's going on. So therefore, no one is really focusing on uh, how do we get out of it in a real way. For example, right now, uh, uh, we got a wheat deal, so to speak, a grain deal with Russia to permit the export from Ukraine. That's small steps but a significant step in bridge building uh, that rebuilds it. So agreeing on what you can agree on while you fight on the things that you cannot agree on. So I think diplomacy requires a lot of bridge building at this point, small steps in the right direction. For example, it could be COVID uh, inoculations. Uh, they need the pharmaceutical products. So it's going to be a step-by-step -step as opposed to a massive policy, uh, one that we can just solve all problems at once. And the other thing is, and here I know that I might be of difference, is do we really want to restrict uh, Russian citizens from, uh, let's say, traveling to the West? Most people don't fight. Most people sit on the sidelines. Sadly, they're not activists. But if they see that there's a better life somewhere else, they come back home and say, I want that. So you also have to figure out how do you persuade those who are just sitting in, watching, and not doing anything, but they can make their demands more subtly. So I think diplomacy is back channels, is bridge building, and also opening up the eyes, uh, whether through tourism or that, of those people who are not activists by nature. 
it's hard to be an activist. It really is. And I have a bunch more questions on the energy side, but given that you have such a rich background in, in the region, um, one more question for you on the policy side. How has diplomacy and international affairs and the international community, how has the approach to conflicts in the region changed as you've seen it since you began your career in, in this field? Uh, can you give us a little bit of context there? Well, I think there's a lot that has changed. I mean, until 91, uh, we viewed the Soviet Union, and uh, understandably so, as the enemy, existential threat, etc. Uh, then I think to a great degree, the world fell asleep. Uh, we didn't worry about security. We worried about uh, climate change, rightly so. But we forgot the other aspect of it. Uh, and the other thing, which is, for example, uh, we fo focus too much on economy in some respects. In other words, the G7 is basically an economic uh, rich uh, countries grouping. But did we have the voices of those who are aspirational or did we have the voices of, for example, a country like Estonia, where I'm very well acquainted, the small country dynamic that's built up a successful society in a good transition? In other words, from my point of view, if you only have the voices of those who are economics, you don't have the philosophical, the moral, the human, which is the world we want. The world we want is what do we want out of the economics, a better world. So we need a greater span of that one. So it has changed dramatically that we focus more almost exclusively sometimes on economics. But should we have only done that? I don't think so. We should have also built up, why do we have economics? So you can educate your people, so you can get better health, so you can get better infrastructure, so you can communicate worldwide. We have to give an outlook, a positive outlook. We've missed the psychology since 91. And in the same context of the economics, so the Ukraine war has shown Europe's broad dependency on Russian energy. Do you see Russia being able to maintain its position as a critical energy provider of gas by diversifying and exporting to China and India as their economies continue to grow? Or do you think with the loss of Europe, um, its best days are over? Uh, let me put it in a different way before I answer directly your question. There are countries like Singapore, a small country, which what do, what's the biggest assets of Singapore? It's actually its people. Okay, It does have a pivotal location, but other places do too. Uh, Japan has basically no natural resources. What's its asset? It's people. So what I'm getting at is that uh, we've focused a lot on developing people, which is right. Education to me is the mainstay. But we have not focused a lot, for example, on Russia. When we did buy their gas, we became dependent on their gas. But on the other hand, what else did they have to sell, for example, other than natural resources? But we didn't focus or try to say, how are you developing your own country? So in other words, it was a narrow focus. We buy, they sell, we buy. But we should have also said, what are you doing with what we buy? Other than buying uh, mansions in London, for example. Uh, other than buying teams in the UK, for example. 
So in other words, we can't just focus on natural resource rich countries and say we buy your resources and we pay you for it, which they have to, but we also have to make sure that they invested in their people. That's a hard one to do, but we've never focused directly on that. So in other words, Russian development also was handicapped by the fact that there was not sufficient internal investment, whether in its people or in its diversification of its economy. No, I do not think that Russia has seen uh, the end with its natural resources. Other countries that you have pointed out, like China and India, uh, China being more natural, it's easier, it borders on Russia, uh, it, it will have a market. The products have a need. So just because it won't send it to Europe or will ultimately send less of it to Europe. Uh, by the way, the pipeline to uh, Hungary is still working through Ukraine. It's not been cut off. So no, its best days are not over, uh, but its best days are over if it doesn't ultimately uh, develop its economy, its people to diversify. You can't just be natural resource rich. Uh, because you got to do something with it. The object of natural resource development is to take a permanent asset, which is in the ground, and put it into a liquid asset and apply it for the development of your country. So in, in short answer is Russia still, because of its richness, it's a huge country, still will have opportunity. I come back to the psychological, the diplomatic. How do we redevelop the trust in its word. It's violated many agreements right now. Once you violate, as we also know in personal relationships, once you lose trust, it is very difficult to rebuild. And it can take, as I said before, your lifetime, not mine, because it's my lifetime doesn't have enough time, decades left uh, to restore that element of trust. Yeah, I think that's an important point, especially as we look at not just development in general, economic, broad economic development, but sustainably developing countries as well that are naturally resource rich. So in that same regard, with the energy system in Europe facing this crisis ever since the onset of COVID, um, to, to feed some of their natural gas demands, do you think the EU would then modify its historically strong anti-fracking stance? Do you see that going back to, to some level of, of um, relaxation of the standards? Well, first of all, uh, I would like to define what is fracking. Remember, I think it was in Oklahoma that they did fracking and there were earthquakes in Illinois. Uh, there has been enough documentation that uh, it's affected the water supplies uh, or the groundwater in many areas. So Europe on the continent, on the whole, is much more environmentally conscious than we are in the United States. They want a lot more, uh, let's say, know-how on it, restrictions. Uh, and right now, uh, while fracking is economically good for the United States, because it's made us an exporter, if you want, of gas, but fracking, I still think uh, we still don't know enough about it how it is impacting the groundwater, how it's impacting, uh, and I've read that uh, uh, in some areas where there is fracking, uh, it's also impacting uh, the maternity 
etc. Uh, so I think, uh, no, I don't think it will really uh, lessen it because uh, we don't know enough about how to really protect the environment and the health uh, in that one. And Europe is very, very conscious of that. So, and besides, it's much more uh, closely compacted population-wise than we are in the United States. So in one respect, if there's no people there, you could say fracking. But if you're doing it in populated areas, you have to worry much more about the health impact as well as the environmental impact. So, no, I don't see that as a let up at all. Right. And we often tend to lose the picture or the perspective from smaller emerging countries, frontier markets. Um, but what does this crisis mean for those countries that those emerging companies, countries that don't want to depend on Europe or China, particularly for increased energy independence by adopting, for example, renewables. So coal is becoming a less viable option. Um, the price of liquefied natural gas is might remain elevated. And, and as a bit of context for our listeners, liquid liquefied natural gas or LNG is natural gas that has been cooled to a liquid state for shipping and storage, which then allows its volume to be about 600 times smaller than its volume in its gaseous state. So what does that mean for these countries that are looking to move towards more energy independence and, and develop sustainably? You've asked actually a loaded question, but let me give different perspectives because that probably is a podcast just in and of itself. Uh, emerging nations say uh, those who are rich in natural resources, especially fossil fuels, you're denying us a future because we need to sell it in uh, order to get to the next stage. Uh, but I will say that many of these uh, countries uh, especially in Africa and in Latin America, can go more solar. Solar is really a neutral one uh, in the sense that the sun is there. It isn't going to disappear. Uh, so you can also focus a lot more on at least one good thing, which is solar. Uh, on the uh, fossil fuels, Ecuador a few years ago said in a different way, you don't want us to decimate the uh Amazon, our Amazon, pay us. They maybe have a point in the sense that it's in the natural interest of the developed nations that we still have uh, the Amazons of the world, so to speak, that take in a lot of uh, the carbon, etc. So I think we not just need to rethink, we need to figure out what's in our common interest and not in our short term slash politics is a problem because we think too much of a short term. But European countries frequently think a little bit longer. Japan thinks a little bit longer. So getting back to your emerging nations, uh, I think we have to understand what's in the common interest, but also help encourage them when they're rich. For example, Morocco has one of the biggest solar panels. Uh, they know that that's a natural so I think we can't just different, uh, say developing nations, emerging nations. We have to differentiate and see where their strengths are and then see if there is another way of doing it uh, that can also help them develop. And like I said, develop your people. People are imaginative. They're creative. Uh, that's a strength. And that's one that's been underestimated because 
other than small countries like Namibia that uh, has about a third of its budget alone on education, although it's now found oil. Uh, but it's become a middle-class country uh, because of its focus on education. So one of the things I think we make a mistake is, and your question is underlying that, is we try to say emerging nations, developing nations. One size does not fit all. We need more differentiations in our policies and not just say uh, lump everything together. We simplify too much. We need to look at things more complex or more, uh, let's say, differentiated than just saying all developing nations. Great, that's super helpful. And one final question for you for this first part of the series. Um, we're gonna try to close on a consumption-minded question as we discussed earlier. As we're moving into winter at the time of this podcast being recorded, what can people, you know, I hesitate to use the term, but across developed nations um, do to be more mindful of their energy consumption during this crisis? Well, um, I think again, we're using developed nations, but if I go to Europe, uh, which I do on a regular basis, I find that every room has a thermometer, so to speak. Uh, uh, you can regulate it. So if you're not in one room, you can leave it colder than in another room. We don't do that very much in the United States, from what I can see. Uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, when I was growing up, uh, which was yesterday for the record, I frequently wore a sweater uh, inside. We still do that in Europe. Uh, what's wrong with that? Do we need baby warmth all the time uh, at time? So I think little things. And do we really need lights on all the time in every room? Uh, it's these little things, little habits. And I want to underscore the word habit. Why habit? If you're taught to turn off the light, uh, it becomes a habit. Maybe you need to... Uh, switch all the switches so that after a while, if you're not in the room, the lights go off. Uh, so it's these little steps that can go a long way to developing the right attitude and developing the right attitudes. Uh, do we really need to see New York City from the moon, so to speak, lit up during the night? Uh, do we need all that light, etc.? So I think it's the little things that can add up uh, just as they found out, for example, on a totally different topic, that a lot of the water that we use is lost because there's leakage in the pipes. Well, everyone wants to build new pipes. What about repairing the old pipes? So it's the little things that we also need to focus on. And the habits, our own habits, I think are critical in this regard. All right, that's great. So I have to pause there, and shortly uh, we're going to hear from you about Russia's role in fertilizer exports, and I'm going to throw it over to our program director, Laura Negri, to cover that topic as well. Um, this has been super insightful, and you've given us a lot to think about, and, and uh, we look forward to continuing the conversation with you. Great. Thank you. Thank you to our SIP listeners for tuning into this episode with Jenik Radin. We still have one more part of this conversation to go, so stay tuned for Jenik's take on the impact of the war on global food and fertilizer prices with Laura Negri.